good thoughts to focus our thinking this morning, uh, particularly as we uh, see the subject we'll be talking about uh, today, uh, to be thankful for the scars. Uh, let's uh, continue our time of worship as we come to God's Word in, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we acknowledge that uh, all of us have wounds of some kind, scars of some kind, because perhaps of our own sinfulness, perhaps for the sinfulness of this world. But we thank you for the scars that you have on our behalf, because it is by your wounds that we have been healed. And so now I ask that you would guide us as we turn our attention to your word. May you be our shepherd and overseer, our guide and our guard, that you would guide us and guard us in your truth and in your truth alone. We desire to live life in a way that is pleasing to you, knowing you and your ways and resting in you. And we trust that what we do this morning would serve to that end by the power of your spirit. So we come to you in our weakness, knowing that it's in our weakness that your power is made known. And so may you speak through our weakness May you speak into our weakness that your power would be made manifest in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I brought a coffee cup along with me uh, this morning. Um, any of you have coffee cups with Bible verses on it? This one says, uh, strength, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, that's one of those, what uh, Laurel and I call coffee cup verses. Those are uh, little pithy sayings that you can put on a coffee cup. It fits on just a little bit of margin you have there, and you can, and, uh, you can read it and be encouraged. However, the Bible is not a collection of coffee cup verses. Uh, it's not a collection of one-liners that are inspirational. Uh, the Bible is a story about and an invitation to learn about and believe in a God we cannot see to guide us through circumstances we cannot understand. And it's important for us to realize that if we, un if we believe a lie about God, that's a lie about life. If there's something about God that we believe that is a lie, when it translates into our life, it will translate as a lie into our life. Today's passage is an example of one of those that you, I don't think there are any coffee cup verses in this passage uh, today. Uh, so we're going to be looking at that and, and digging in. We've been talking, and the topic for today is suffering for righteousness sake. And uh, we've been talking a lot about suffering. Uh, I'd like to say as we get into this, many of you may be sitting there saying, well, I'm not suffering, I'm okay. Uh, others of you may say, I, I understand this. But suffering is anything that is difficult for you at any intensity, from mild to intolerable. Anything that is difficult for you at any intensity, from mild to intolerable. Some people think, well, you know, I look over here, they're really suffering, my little stuff, that's nothing. No, that's still suffering. That's still something that is a trouble. It's something that is difficult for you. For you. And what's really important, which has gripped my heart in this study of 1 Peter, is that it's important that we have a solid theology of suffering. We need to have a solid understanding of where God is in suffering 
So we are not shaken from our faith in God when troubles come. It's so easy for us to have a good news gospel that doesn't have a good place for suffering, and then when suffering comes, our faith gets shaken. And so that's part of the motivation in my heart to look at First Peter. And I hope, and one of the things I struggle with is trying to represent these things that God is trying to tell us and represent them to you well, because there are deep things here I think we need to understand. Last week, we looked at three examples of relationships that cause suffering. Peter was using these as an examples and how we should respond. He talked about our relationship to the civic authorities, to human government. He talked about our relationships in the workplace, employers and employees. And he uh, talked about marriage relationships where uh, there can be struggles and, and suffering. We also talked about, remember the old bracelet, what would Jesus do? And I suggested that maybe that's not the best way to look at things because that can degenerate into, all right, I just need to do exactly what Jesus did. No, it can't end there because better questions would be, what did Jesus do? And what will Jesus do? Or maybe better ways to look at it. Because Jesus gave us an example to follow, but he also gave us the ability to follow that example by dying for our sins. And he is now both shepherd and overseer, guide and guard of our souls. And one day he's coming back for us. So what did Jesus do? He died for us. He rose from the dead so that we can have our sins forgiven. What will Jesus do? He will walk with us through this life as our shepherd and our guide. And one day he's coming back for us. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that he's coming back for us? Do you live as if he's coming back for us? That's an important thing. So we're going to look today at 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 22, uh, my usual custom is to read all of the verses at once. Today we're going to read them in three sections and uh, deal with them uh, section by section. Uh, so the, the uh, first section here is from 8 to 12. I'm going to read that. And so Peter moves on from these uh, general and, or these specific examples of government and workplace and marriage to give a general summary of how to approach all difficult relationships. So that's what we're going to see here in verses 8 to 12. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, and follow along with me as I read verses 8 to 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter builds on these examples of government, the workplace, and marriage, and he instructs all of us how to relate to everyone in all circumstances, in every situation we find ourselves. He says, finally, all of you, and he's talking to us as, his, as God's church, as the believers in Jesus Christ, he says, all of you, and he does it in, a, in what I call a positive and a negative. Here are the, is what you should do, and here are things you should not do. What you should do, he said, is think right and love right. You should think right and you should love right. 
You should have unity of mind and you should have humility of mind towards one another. Unity of mind. Unity is not uniformity. It's not everybody thinking the same way, but it's everybody thinking in the same purpose, focused on the same end goal. Unity of mind and humility of mind. And then he also says that we should not only think right, but love right. He says, have brotherly love towards one another. We are family. We are to love one another as brothers and sisters and have tender hearts towards one another. Then in the negative, in verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Do not repay anyone for the harm they do us. That word evil, you know, when we look at the word, at least if you're like me, I look at the word evil and I think, I think Hitler, I think killing fields, I think gross atrocities, and those are certainly evil. But evil is anything opposed to how God would have us to live because those things are harmful to us. Those things are injurious to us. Those cause injury. Those cause, cause scars in our lives. Whether they be these big things or these little things, they are opposed to God. They are evil. When we as brothers or sisters, and that's what is really striking here because Peter is talking to believers, we have to acknowledge we don't always treat each other well. We don't always treat each other well. And so sometimes there are times that we speak badly about or towards someone or we act badly towards someone else. And then the question is, how do we respond when we are mistreated? Peter says we are to be a blessing, not to get revenge or not to get even. So if I'm mistreated by somebody, what's my tendency? Well, I'm, not, I'm just going to give you the cold shoulder. I'm going to not talk to you. I'm going to maybe be a little passive aggressive or maybe not so passive and more aggressive. Uh, I'm going to get back at you. And Peter says, no, you are to be, seek to be a blessing. You are to seek what it is to love, have unity of mind, humility of mind, brotherly love, and a tender heart. And then in verses 10 and 11, Peter roots this instruction uh, in God's word. He these are excerpts from Psalm 34 in many versions of the Bible uh, these verses 10 and 11 are indented. They're, they're set off from the rest of the text because these are a, a quote from Psalm 34. So Peter says you should, you should think right and you should do right and you should respond well to people when you are harmed because of who God is. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. So why should we do this? He says because God is for those who are in the right. God is for those who are in the right. So why should we respond in love when we are not treated in love? Why should we respond with blessing when we are spoken badly of? It's because God is for us. God is for those who are in the right. He sees and he hears the righteous. He promises to answer when we call out to him. It says later, we'll look at that, his ears are open to their prayer. God promises to answer and hear us. And he hears the righteous. And you say, well, that excludes me. I'm not the righteous. Well, yes and no. Uh, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the righteous. Because your righteousness, your right standing before God does not depend on you and who you are and what you've done. It depends on who he is and what he's done. And we heard those verses read for us in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live 
to righteousness, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus, the righteous one, took my unrighteousness on him and gave me his righteousness. So we are the righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And God is for those who are righteous. He sees and he hears us when we cry out to him. If you look in verse 12, he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. This is not a statement of stern rebuke or fear, but a statement of tender love. You know, there's one way to say God is watching you, right? God is watching you. Uh, that's intended to bring fear, right? And there is a place for that because God is watching you when you're about to put your hand in the cookie jar and you know you shouldn't be putting your hand in the cookie jar. God is watching. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. He's saying that the eyes of the Lord are upon you. His ears are open to your prayer. As I was thinking about this, shamelessly again, I was thinking of our grandchildren. There, I don't have any pictures today, sorry. Uh, um, there are times when we take them to the playground. And so they're climbing all over the equipment as best they can because they're still young and not really skilled in a lot of these things. And what am I doing while they're there? My eyes are on them and my ears are open to their prayer. I'm watching. And what am I watching? Well, I'm watching with joy as they enjoy themselves, but I'm also watching with care. I'm watching for them they're going to get into danger if there's something they're not aware of that they're stepping into that's going to be harmful. I'm also watching for situations that they might need a little bit of help. There have been times they've been trying to climb up the sliding board, so I'll just sort of walk over and put my foot behind them in the sliding board so they have something to, to climb up on. And then they'll get up there and say, I did it, I did it. I can say, yeah, you sure did. But they did, right? Now, they needed my help but they did it. My eyes are open to them. My ears are open. And my ears are open, so sometimes the prayer is, please help. So you go over and you help. Sometimes you have to just pull them off. Sometimes you push them up a little bit. Sometimes the prayer is, a, is just a groaning and a moaning of frustration. You can see they can't do it. In any event, I'm not there to criticize. I'm not there to, to put them down. I'm there to help. I'm there to make them be safe. I'm there to watch over them. That's what Peter is saying God is doing for us. What is our motivation to respond with love and blessing and care when we are mistreated? Our motivation is that God is watching over us. God is watching over us. He's there for us, and he's asking us to be there for other people. He will take care of us. He will take care of that person who's reviling us. Whatever needs to be taken care of, he will take care of. We don't have to worry about that. Because it says that not only is God for those who are in the right, it says, if you look at the end of verse 12, God is against those who are evil. He is against those who do evil things. He's against those who do harmful things. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So I can be free. Well, let me turn it the other way around. You can be free to love me if I misuse you or mistreat you because you know that God's going to take care of me. He's going to deal with me and whatever needs to be dealt with. He is for you, and he's against those who would do evil. 
Going back to the, the playground equipment, uh, Laurel and I were with our grandchildren on a piece of playground equipment, and they were going up to the slides. Suddenly, two older kids came. They were just talking, and they went up to the, on the playground equipment, sat themselves down in front of the slides. The kids couldn't even get by. They couldn't get onto the slides because these two kids were sitting there. These older children were sitting there talking. And so the grandkids looked at us like, what am I going to do? I want to go on the slides. So they just sort of dejectedly went somewhere else. So what did we do? We had to speak to these older kids and say, you know, would it be possible for you guys just to move, let these little kids go down the slide? Not only did they move, they left. <laughs> we weren't asking them to leave, though we were glad that they left in the sense that they, were, they didn't belong there. They could have sat anywhere in the park. They didn't have to sit right at the top of the sliding board. And so our eyes were not only on the righteous, on our grandchildren, our ears were open to their prayer, our face was against those who were causing harm. And that's how God deals with us. That's why we can do these things, because God is watching over us to accomplish his purposes. So what is this, the conclusion of this section? God calls us to do good. God calls us to do good regardless of how we're treated by believers or unbelievers, he calls us to do good because he is watching over us to accomplish his purposes. He's not calling us to do good so we can earn points. He's not calling us to do good so that we can have some kind of favor. He's calling us to do good because we are his children and he's watching over us and he will keep us safe. So that's all good so far, right? We should do good. It's a good thing. Peter says, if you desire to love life and see good days, this is what you should do. This all sounds good. But then he gets into verses 13 to 17, which is our next section that we're going to look at. And he says, yes, it's good for you to do good, and now you're going to suffer for doing good. All right, what did you say? Well, let's look at what he says here in verses 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." He starts off by saying, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? He just said, do good, and now there's no one who's going to harm you if you do good. I believe what Peter's doing here is he's speaking to the way we naturally look at things. Because if you're like me, we often believe that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between our degree of goodness and the level of blessing or suffering that we get, right? Right? We think there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between our degree of goodness and the level of blessing or suffering we receive. And we find this comforting and reassuring because if bad things are happening to us, it's because we did bad things. And if good things are happening to us, it's because we did good things, which means if we do good things, then good things will happen to us. And if we do bad things, well, then I'm going to expect bad things to happen. It all makes sense in the cosmic sense of things, right? Um, and unfortunately, uh, that's not how God works. Uh, but our thinking is that more goodness is more happiness and more badness is more hard times. But Peter's point here is, no, that's not really true. As I was reflecting on this, how many of you like the, the movie or the play The Sound of Music? 
How many of you like it and don't want to admit it? Um, <laughs> we love the sound of music. Uh, uh, one of the songs here uh, really applies to this. Uh, Maria and the captain realize that they are in love with one another, and their whole worlds now get turned upside down because of that. And in the song they sing, expressing their love for one another, uh, it's called Something Good, right? Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. It's a great song, a beautiful song, very romantic and very theologically incorrect. <laughs> right? Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good because that's the only reason something good could have come. Peter says, no, uh, looking at that thing, looking at things the way we do naturally is not the way to look at it because then he goes on to say in 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. What? What Peter is saying here is that doing the right thing is not a guaranteed protect, protection against suffering. All right, that totally shatters our way of looking at life now. Peter is saying doing the good thing, doing the right thing is not a guaranteed protection against bad things happening to us. It's not guaranteed protection against suffering. Why? Because there are those who hate God. There are those who hate God's truth. There are those who hate God's people. So we may suffer anyway. And it's not just in spite of doing good, because sometimes we'll say, well, all right, I did good, and look what the bad things happened. So we suffered in spite of doing good. No, Peter is saying you're going to suffer because of doing good. There are times that you're going to suffer because of the good that you have done. We're seeing this in our own society now where Christians are spoken of badly because of things we say or do. We're saying or doing the right things and we're maligned for that. If one example that I read in a commentary I read, just suggest to someone that the, the best way to prevent the transmission of certain sexually transmitted disease is sexual abstinence. Just suggest that in a public forum and see what ridicule you get. So as Christians, we are in that position where doing the good thing puts us in line of fire for being criticized and being maligned. So we're tempted to say, and this is why a theology of suffering is important, not just in this area, but certainly in this area, I did the good thing and bad thing happened, so there must be something wrong. No, there are times that we're going to do the good thing and we're going to suffer for it. And more than that, if you look in verse 17, this is what really should blow our socks off. Peter says, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. There will come times in our life, Peter is saying, that it is God's will for you that you suffer for doing good. And that's where our, we need to have a good theology of suffering, a good understanding of who God is, because to think that it could be God's will for me to suffer even though I did good will shatter our faith if our faith in God is very shallow, if our faith in God is not deep enough. Peter says, 
it may be God's will that you suffer for doing good. Well, how do we respond to this unexplainable and seemingly meaningless suffering? Because it doesn't make sense to us. We did the right thing and we're still suffering. Well, there's some wrong ways that we tend to respond when bad things happen to good people, right? That's where we're putting ourselves in the category of good people. Some wrong ways are despair, anger, bitterness. We accuse God of injustice and hardness of heart. God, I did this for you and look what I, what did I get out of it? I'm just, forget this, I'm not doing good anymore. Or we assume that we must have done something wrong and we seek to fix it. Well, it's obvious that I'm suffering now. I did something wrong. I have to go back. All right, what did I do wrong? I did, well, it must have been when I was in fifth grade. I did this. And we try to figure out what we did wrong to fix it. Sometimes our advice to ourselves or to others is, well, just, just rock up and get through this. It's not going to last long anyway. This too will pass. Or we try to find the meaning in it. We try to find the purpose in it. We're suffering. Say, okay, God brought this. The only reason that it's coming is there's something in me I need to learn. So, God, what is it that I need to learn? I need to find the meaning. I need to find the purpose in this. And God sometimes says, you know, the only purpose in this is the mysterious purpose of my will that I cannot tell you right now. And again, I do, we do this with the grandchildren. Oh, Grandpa, why'd you do that? You know what? It's too. I can't even explain to you why I did that. Just trust me that I did it because it's in your best interest that I did it. It's so complicated that, that I, at least I can't explain it to you. But just trust me that this is in your best interest. God asks of the same thing of us. What does Peter say the right way is? He says, honor the Lord Christ in your heart. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor him as holy. Focus on him alone. When we're in the middle of suffering, particularly suffering we don't understand, suffering that doesn't make sense, our first response is to focus on Jesus alone. Honor him as Lord, as the one who's over all, and honor him as holy, the one who can do no wrong. He says, those who are coming against you, don't fear them. Don't get all troubled and agitated. Not because you're putting on a brave face, because he says, one day they're going to be put to shame. In verse 16, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Someday, those who continue in doing evil will be put to shame. They will be dishonored. They will be disgraced. They will be humiliated by God's intervention in his time. And then he says, to, be prepared to make a defense for that hope that's in you. You know, we often, that's actually, if there is a coffee cup verse, maybe that's one that's in this section. You know, we say, be prepared to make a defense. And we just sort of pull that out of the context. Well, the context of this is when we are suffering for having done good. If we are suffering for having done the right thing, Peter says that we need to be prepared to make a defense to those who are accusing us. Sometimes we will need to, to speak out who is Jesus, what he has done in our lives, why I believe what I believe. You may not agree with me, but this is why I believe what I believe, and this is why I'm standing here. And we are to do it with gentleness and respect. We are to connect Jesus with the realities of our world particularly if we are confronted by those who do not understand or those who hate God, we need to be prepared to make that defense. And we can't do that if we don't have a good understanding of where God is in the midst of our suffering. And it may or may not happen in this life, but most assuredly it will happen in the next where those who are opposed to God will be put to shame. 
those who are opposed to God will be put to shame. So again, we are free to love. We are free to be respectful and gentle, not because we're overlooking what they're doing. No, because we know God is not overlooking what they've done. God is going to take care of it in his time and in his way. Wow. So God asks us to do good. God asks us to be willing to suffer for doing good. And consistent with what we've seen before, these are really impossible tasks. Knowing at least who I am, if someone speaks against me, what happens? The anger, the self-defensiveness, everything rises up within me and I want to defend myself. And God says, no, leave that to me. These are impossible things for us to do. And so in the next section, verses 18 to 22, we're going to look at God gives us, or Peter gives us, uh, how we should look at this. And this is a difficult section to fully understand. And I wish we had the opportunity to dig into it more, but we're going to give the highlights here today. So when you read through this, there may be some things you're scratching your head. That's all right. Keep scratching your head because you'll still be scratching your head when we're done. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So how can we manage these impossible tasks? Well, the first thing is because it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about what he did for us and what he's doing in us. It's not about us. It's about what he did and what he is doing in us. In verse 18, Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was falsely accused by us. Jesus was mistreated by us. And what did he do? He took that mistreatment upon himself. He died for that. He paid the penalty for that so that we could be righteous, so that he could give us his righteousness that he might bring us to God, that he might bring us to God. We were separated from God because of our sin. Jesus took our abuse on him so that we can be drawn to God. It's about what Jesus did for us. He suffered for our sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous. So this becomes both a motivation as well as the power to be able to do this. It's the motivation because if God loved us like that, how much should we love others? But we can't do that on our own. God changes our hearts because of what Jesus has done. He changes us to conform us to his image, to enable us to do it. Jesus says, it's my life in you that's going to enable you to do this. So not only did Jesus suffer for our sins to bring us to God, but look in verse 22. After his resurrection, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There is no power, there is no authority, there is no force, there is no person, there is no angel, there is no power of evil, there is nothing 
that is not subject to Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can come against us. There is nothing that any one person can do. There is nothing that Satan himself can do to us that is outside of God's control. Jesus Christ has everything subjected to him. Well, why is that important? That's important because when I'm in the midst of the suffering, I can know that God's eye is on me and his ear is open to my prayer and he is there to take care of this. And for reasons that I don't understand, he has allowed, caused, brought, as Peter says, it may be God's will for you to suffer. He has brought this into my life, but he's there for his purposes. My goal is not to figure it out. My goal is to keep my eyes on him because he alone can see me safely through. So the very, very, very short version of Noah because you say, okay, why does Peter bring Noah into this? You can read about it in Genesis 6 to 9 if you want more details. But Noah built an ark, a huge boat, that rescued Noah and his family from the floodwaters of God's judgment on sinful humanity. It rescued Noah and his family from the floodwaters of God's judgment on sinful humanity. Everyone outside the ark died. Those who entered by faith lived. Those who entered the ark by faith, building a boat on dry land when it had never rained, and God says it's going to rain and there's going to be a flood, took a lot of faith. And those who entered the ark by faith were rescued, and those who were outside the ark died. In the same way, God sent Jesus to die for our sins, to die for the sins of the world, that all who would put their faith in him could be rescued from a coming judgment. God says there is a judgment coming. God's going to make all wrongs right. He's going to bring judgment and justice. So Jesus died for the sins of the world that all who would put their faith in him could be rescued from that coming judgment. Jesus is the ark that rescues us. Just as all those who are outside the ark died, so will all those who are outside Jesus die. Those who refuse to accept his sacrifice for their sins will suffer eternal separation from God, which is what the Bible describes as death. Those of us who put our faith in Jesus are rescued. We are brought into that ark of safety. And Peter goes on even further to say Noah was not only a picture, Noah's ark was not only a picture or a shadow of Jesus coming, Noah was a picture of baptism, of our relationship with God, because as the, the water of judgment lifted the boat up, the water actually rescued them. The water killed those who were outside the ark, but it rescued Noah and his family. He says that that water is also now a picture of the baptism that we undergo. And Peter says it's not the cleansing of dirt from the flesh. It's not getting into the water and washing that what baptism represents for us, it's the public declaration of the inward faith we have in Jesus. It's the public declaration of the inward faith we have in Jesus. What we are saying is that his death and his resurrection are enough to forgive our sins, to cleanse our conscience, and give us the ability to live a life of faithful obedience to him. And when we do water baptism, that's, it's a symbol, it's a declaration of the person standing up and saying, I am stepping in the ark. I am stepping into faith in Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus died, 
I die, and just as he was raised, I am raised to new life. Baptism is a symbol of that as we are baptized into the body of Christ. So what's the bottom line with all of this? And I I understand there's much more that we could say about these passages, um, but what's the bottom line? Well, one way to summarize this is life is hard and God's in charge. Life is hard and God's in charge. I just heard this. I was listening to uh, Alistair Begg uh, preach, and he said this, and again, in, the, in the, the providence of God's timing, I was preparing this message, and he said, made this statement. He says, in the mysteries of the purposes of, I'm sorry, in the mysteries of his purposes, God allows all kinds of things to come into the lives of his servants for purposes that are often beyond our ability to understand in the immediate or even in the long term. In the mysteries of his purposes... God allows all kinds of things to come into the lives of his servants for purposes that are often beyond our ability to understand in the immediate or even in the long term. In other words, by God's decision, life often hurts. And how we respond is an opportunity to show who God is. Peter's call here is for us to handle suffering and injustice by crying out to God knowing that he sees, knowing that he hears, knowing that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords who rules over all, knowing that one day he will right all the wrongs, he will put to shame all those who have rejected him, he will honor those who have trusted him. As one poet has said, when we can't see his hand, trust his heart. When we're in the middle of suffering, we often cannot see the hand of God. We don't understand. But God doesn't call us to understand. He calls us to trust. When we can't see his hand, trust his heart. I'd like to close actually picking up in Psalm 34 where Peter left off, reading a couple more verses. And if you want to turn there to Psalm 34, Peter went down through... uh, uh, 17, we're going to read actually 15 to 19. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. What I'd like to do as we close this time is just leave us with a time for some silent reflection. And my suggestion to you is to look at these verses in Psalm 34 and think of the suffering that is in your life And what would God show you from these verses or what we've talked about today that you want to remember when life is hard, that you want to remember in the middle of that suffering? So let's just take a minute together of silent reflection and whatever you want to do before the Lord during that time.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can be confident that by your death and resurrection, you have conquered sin and death for us. You now stand as King of kings and Lord of lords over all powers and authorities. There is no one and no thing outside your sovereign control. And when we suffer in this world, particularly with the things we do not understand, particularly when we suffer as a result of having done the right thing, help us to call out to you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to believe that one day you will right all the wrongs and make all things good. So now we say to ourselves, be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. We can leave to you to order our lives and provide, knowing that you will always be faithful. You will see us safely through to the end. And Lord, we commit ourselves to you and ask that you would apply these to our lives individually and corporately as you see fit to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.